Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I look at a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. I do this in order to try and explore different visions of the future, to see what these different utopian and dystopian imaginings might tell us about our contemporary context, our contemporary society and politics, and to see what things of of value we can extract um, from those utopias in what ways they serve as a a kind of mirror to see our world in a different way, as well as to pick up things that might be uh, problematic or or to be avoided in those um, visions. This episode is about the 1995 film Strange Days. This has been a really interesting one to look at and and surprisingly relevant to to things that are going on today. There's a lot of interesting stuff this film does with um, perspectives and cameras and so on that it's useful for thinking about how technology um te- particularly technology allows us to record and um broadcast ourselves kind of democratize the process of uh, the production of truth through the media for the media but also just um being able to produce other things whatever we want and how that links in with potential kind of movements for for justice and also also an interesting way of thinking about things like YouTube and, and Instagram in terms of the way the film talks about commodification of um, memory and experience and stuff like that. Also, there's a lot of stuff in there, race relations, which is very relevant to what's going on in America today. And the way that links that in with technology, video, filming is uh, all very interesting. But uh, I won't go on about that anymore because obviously you'll hear about all that in the uh, interview with my guest. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might recognise this guest. It's my second returning guest. It's Anna McFarlane, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Glasgow. And she was on the podcast before to talk about Neuromancer. So if you haven't heard that and you're interested in hearing about Neuromancer, that's there to go back to. I know I've got a new subscriber on Patreon, so I just want to say thank you very much to Calvin for signing up and supporting me on there, which is at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. I'm not going to talk any more about that and try and make you sign up to that right now. So I'm just going to move on to my interview with Anna. Hello, it's me again, just quickly interjecting to say I forgot to mention that this film has a rape scene in it, which is discussed in fairly graphic detail. So if that's something that might affect you, then you might want to skip this episode or at least skip ahead five or ten minutes when you get to that bit. Joining me now is a returning guest, uh, Anna McFarlane, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Glasgow, who is previous on the, on the podcast to talk about Neuromancer. Thank you very much for joining me again, Anna. Thanks for having me on again, Paul. So today we are talking about Strange Days, a 1995 film directed by Catherine Bigelow, starring Ralph Fiennes and Angela Bassett. So this is um, another kind of cyberpunk film. We've done a few cyberpunk films recently. Not a um, success particularly at the time, I think is, is fair to say, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Certainly commercially anyway, and uh, its reputation's probably improved somewhat over the years. But um, So let's start off talking about 
the novum of the story, which for anyone who doesn't know, novum's a term which I think comes from a guy called Darko Suvin, which basically just means the science fiction thing that kind of makes the story possible, like the, the technological innovation, which in this case is squid technology. So perhaps you'd like to have a go at sort of describing what that is, Anna. Sure, yeah. Um, so squid is an acronym. It stands for Superconducting Quantum Interference Device. But um, I don't think we need to worry too much about that. It's just that's just what they've called it to get cool acronym. And it's a kind of like um, squidgy, jelly, electrode kind of thing that you wear on your head. And it records the wearer's sensations. So it, it supposedly records straight from the cerebral cortex. So you're not just getting visuals as you would when you record with the camera. You're getting their sensory feelings. You're getting the visuals. You're getting the adrenaline and the cortisol that goes through them when they're experiencing different emotions. So you're basically getting a full spectrum experience from these recordings that you can make from these squid devices. Mm. And this technology is is like illegal. So it's tends to be from what we see in the film tends to be used for for kind of illicit stuff like the type there's a lot of porn stuff in there inevitably as you get with any new technology and i think the, the first so the first introduction we have to it is like a robbery scene obviously not many of us uh, commit armed robbery so people get to experience that we see these people going through they've got guns they get the adrenaline rush it's kind of like a reminds me of, of gopro which is interesting it's kind of um, prefigured prefigured that technology that's the kind of vision we get the idea is we you get to experience that robbery feel the rush and the main character is is called lenny nero and he's a ex vice cop who's turned into a kind of sleazebag hustler and he deals in the in the, the tapes that um people record to use on their, their squid device so he's a, he collects and, and sells these tapes he said in a in our new answer episode about this thing of the, the street finding its own use for things which the gibson thing which is obviously what we have here with um the technology being kind of picked up by the underworld yeah totally like in in the story of the film it goes that the squid devices started off as being means for the the fbi and the police to do undercover surveillance so you know rather than wearing a wire under your clothes you might wear a squid on your head and have a wig over it to hide it so it's a lot easier to disguise the fact that you're recording what's going on but as is usual with cyberpunk technology You can't just invent a technology that's then used for one licit purpose. It quickly gets adopted by these underworld characters and the street finds its own uses for things. So it quickly becomes a way to make money for people like Lenny and uh, quickly it becomes more imaginative than means that it's put to. So I think that uh, one of the things they say about, you know, as you say, the first example we get is a robbery. And one of the things they say the purpose of the squid device is in its illicit use is that it gives rich people or people that can do anything, it gives them the chance to do those things that they can't do. So like illegal activity, you know, we, we see a few kind of um, things like this, even though the videos where people die is actually kind of looked down on by Lenny. Mm. He thinks that it's like kind of a bit too far, but that's how far people want to go. It's experiencing something that you couldn't do in your daily life, even if you're supposedly a person that has it all. Mm. It's also, I think, worth mentioning the, the setting, which I think when you say cyberpunk, this isn't necessarily what you typically imagine. It's feels, it's like far more contemporary, I think, other cyberpunk films and novels and so on. Yeah, it's very near future. It's set in, um, well, the film itself was made in 1985 and it's set in 1999. 
on New Year's Day. So we're just getting the countdown to that year 2000, the millennium. And it definitely, when you watch it now, it definitely has that flavor that I think those of us that were around at that point will remember when it was coming into the year 2000. There was all this kind of excitement, even though it's just an arbitrary date on the calendar, there's so much excitement about it as if you know you're stepping into the 21st century. Things are going to be so different. The panic but about at the same it as well. Time, Totally, that anxiety. And I wonder, I was quite interested in this, that I wasn't maybe old enough to remember 1995 and the kind of political and social atmosphere there, but definitely coming up to the millennium when there was the Y2K bug and things like that, you know, it was predicted that a lot of the computers would crash because for some reason their dials wouldn't be able to deal with the fact that the year was beyond 1999 and planes might fly out of the sky and all this kind of thing because air traffic control might go down so there was definitely that feeling that there was a fear of this future but an excitement about it as well and i think the film really captures that which i think it might be quite prescient for that that you know i don't know how much that excitement had started to build by 1985 but you definitely feel that through the film yeah i think that yeah i think that probably would have built later than that so yeah i definitely think that was mm-hmm. um prescient i wanted to return to the new year's eve setting a bit later because i think it's quite significant in terms of some of the themes of the film and then what you said there about the kind of you know excitement and anxiety thing so perhaps come back to that but it's worth mentioning as well this like in this build-up to the new year that's it's kind of the sense of degenerating chaos that's going on like there's like people you know like drinking and partying and people rioting and you know the police are out in the streets in force so yeah that's something that's kind of going on in the background of the film this sense of like building towards something that we don't know what what is happening this yeah degenerating chaos as we approach the this like event horizon of of the millennium so yeah that's quite interesting um i just wanted to say that early at the opening as well i really like the the opening of the film where uh lenny's just like driving through the city and he's like constantly switching radio stations while he's driving so there's like loads of quick cuts between different music but also the camera keeps cutting outside to this writing and chaos it's really confusing and disorientating and i just thought that was uh, kind of foreshadowed some of the themes of the technology but also i just thought it was a kind of interesting technique yeah definitely there's a kind of um bricolage i suppose there of like putting together different types of soundtracks with this uh, it really is like a dystopian vision that he's seeing through the windows of his car of people fighting and um, I think there's maybe a Santa Claus getting attacked at one point yeah. and then that kind of is sometimes put to classical music so you've got a sense of them maybe a clockwork orange homage there of this kind of violence that's happening but so much beauty as well so I think that it kind of hits on what you're talking about before about this anxiety but also excitement that there's, there's a kind of utopian dystopian tension I think here of you know beautiful music put with really violent imagery and how that feels coming up to the millennium of uh, the possibility of a beautiful new beginning but with something that's kind of everything seems so bad and mm. I, th- I think that that's the riots in the street and the part the public parties that we see as well these things are kind of like held in this tension of just the the very good and very bad and we're not quite sure which way things are going to go it's almost like everything's on a knife edge mm. the way this uh, sort of chaos is framed from lenny's point of view is perhaps significant just in terms of giving if anyone hasn't seen the film the kind of character he is he doesn't all these rights and stuff he takes a kind of 
gleeful disaster capitalism approach so he says there's energy in the air there's money to be made there's dreams to sell so that just gives you an idea of the kind of person he is at least at the beginning of the film anyway so let's go and let's talk about the squid technology because that's obviously one of the most significant things about the film so as we've already touched on there's a lot of because of this technology there's a lot of first person sequences where we see through the through the eyes of, of someone else as we mentioned tends to be illicit there's the, the lots of porn stuff and people committing crimes but also lenny uses it to relive experiences with his ex girlfriend who who's um, broken up with there's a, there's a lot to talk about in that in general but just to start off like could you tell us what were some of the more interesting elements that jumped out for you in terms of what the film is doing with the squid technology and the, the first person camera views and, and so on yeah um i've actually written about this elsewhere there's a collection called cyberpunk and visual culture where i've written a chapter and it's very much about how Catherine Bigelow uses this um, first-person vision. I think what she's trying to do is that um, she's trying to make her filmmaking itself more visceral. So obviously, we are not experiencing a squid recording as a as a viewer of the film. We are not kind of getting the full spectrum of emotions directly pumped into our cerebral cortex. But by using these first-person cameras, I think that that's exactly what she's trying to get us to feel. She's trying to get us to put ourselves into the position of, so right from the first scene, this guy who's um, committing a robbery, I think it's um, a Korean restaurant or something similar to this. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of, there's a racially charged element here of this violent guy breaking into this place. There's a, a, a macho camaraderie between these men that are all part of this team that are breaking in here. And then there's that excitement of it. And like you see him running up the stairs, the police are arriving. Um, we are running with him up the stairs as he comes up to the side of the building outside and he's deciding whether to jump or not. And we're there with him at every point to mm. this. And Bigelow designed her cameras specifically for this film so that she could capture that sense of immediacy and that first-person outlook. So I, I very much think that she's trying to do with her camera work what the squid supposedly does in the film. I think that that's what she finds quite interesting about it is that it's a commentary on film making itself and about putting the viewer into the into different perspectives and making you take on different characteristics that are quite distasteful or disgusting to your regular persona mm. and how cinema makes you do that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think there's something going in there in terms of like it's about cinema in some way. Like there's something about like complicity mm-hmm. and what. You're seeing. I mean, most obviously, let's talk about the most controversial scene in the film, which is um, a rape scene that happens, which we experience from the first person. To me, it was almost like a classic, um, like trope of movies. You know, a woman being chased. Um, you know, something you see all the time in like horror films, in particular. You know, it's obviously a, a trope, mm-hmm. like the woman running away. Uh, but also, you know, it happens in in every genre, and we are experiencing that trope again, but we're seeing it from first person, and it's kind of it takes it a step further in terms of intensity as well. Like it's a really horrible scene to watch. It's we see this guy putting a belt around her neck and then starting to rape her and he's uh the idea here is he puts the squid on her right and he's wearing one so he's Mm -hmm. he's feeding his um perceptions and what he's feeling into her and she's experiencing that and that's that's making her obviously more scared and then that's feeding back to the killer who's experiencing that and that's giving him a thrill it's creating this loop of like thrill and fear so do you think that is is kind of trying to almost like deconstruct that trope and like 
put us in a position um, to make us feel like more uncomfortable with it? Well, yeah, I, I do, because I think it is, like you say, it is quite a common trope of a horror movie. Like, if not, you know, this really includes the the killer in the in the shot, right? Because he's wearing the squid and we see his reflection in the mirror as he's about to go and commit this crime. So as the viewer, we know that this is the killer and we're watching and we're experiencing what what he's experiencing. But yeah, in horror films, we'd often get a camera angle, not necessarily, obviously, if it's meant to be first version recorded, but you would often get a camera angle of the, the killer or the evil thing following the women around. That is quite a common thing. So it's just got almost like including that character in the shot and making you more aware of the complicity I think yeah it's a really interesting scene to deal with because one of the things I find in looking at this film is that when you go back and look at uh, reviewers of the time the level of shock that you read from the reviews is very very high whereas to me watching it now I think that it's still a very horrific scene, but I think we've maybe we've we've seen equally horrible things elsewhere if you've regularly watched eighteen rated films. So I don't know how much it still has that same level of power that it maybe had back then. But definitely I think that they thought the film is pretending to make a comment on this, but actually it's having its cake and eating it because it's giving you this really kind of nasty, horrible scene, which the reviewers that I read, a lot of them said it was meant to be sexually thrilling to the viewer, which I didn't agree with when I watched it. I thought that it was just meant to be horrific. I didn't find it. So, you know what I mean? It's something that I kind of struggle with because I feel like my reading of the scene doesn't align with the critics of that time. And I don't know if that's just like because it's in a bit of a distance in time because we're used to a different cinematic landscape. And I'm not sure, I'm, uh, to be honest, it's a really difficult scene and I think it's it's, it'll be really interesting to hear what other people think about how it's played because I definitely thought it was a commentary but others, like I say, have absolutely said it's it's exploitative and it's just an excuse to include something so horrible. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear what other people think as well because I'm not sure how to figure it out. So if anyone listening wants to, wants to comment on what they thought about it, I'll have all the contact details for the podcast at the end so yeah, feel free to, to send in what you think but yeah I, I i think i agree with you like although i have to say i did find it quite affecting still like watching it now like the, the, it's yeah. something about the, the first person thing and there's, I, there's this idea with through the film with the, the squid stuff of, of being like forced to watch something and you do feel like you're you're forced to watch it in a sense but obviously you're not and, and again there's this the loop thing i mean i think it's, it's pretty obvious like thing about cinema this this loop that the killer's creating of thrill and fear it's like i am deeply uncomfortable watching it but i am still sat there watching it do you know what i mean so that there's that yeah. complicity thing but um, and and you see it as well like i think she does a good job of showing it because when you see the, the rape for the first time it's also while lenny is watching it so he's watching this recording you're seeing the first person shots but then it's interrupted by Lenny's reactions to what he's seeing. So in that way, I think the film is giving you a guideline for how a normal person would experience this. You know, Lenny's like shivering, but at the same time, you can see that he can feel the sexual arousal of the killer, but he's fighting it like like the women, you know, in the video. He's fighting it every time. He's, he feels how disgusting it is. But yet, it's a direct recording of this killer's sensations as well. He has to feel it. But then he's retching and he's sweating afterwards and he actually vomits then. So it's 
it's definitely framed as being like this is one of the most horrific and sick and sadistic things that you could do with this technology but it's just whether you as a viewer feel that that is then justification for including something that's so horrible yeah but again as i say there's there's worse that you might you'll probably have seen if you watch 18 films on a regular basis i think you'll have seen worse than what you see in this film yeah i think the the mirror thing you mentioned is that there's a lot of um shots of mirrors and reflections in mirrors in this film as well so that's that's not a coincidence that you see the killer in the mirror i don't think again i think that's kind of partly like a, a complicity thing of like putting you in the position of of the killer who's who's watching that and um yeah like i said i found it effective in terms of making me think about that trope and you know how uncomfortable it, it made me feel but yeah i could understand someone having having problems with it as well well the other thing i, I was thinking of the, the the squid made me think of which wouldn't have been contemporary at the time but with stuff like um youtube and instagram i don't know if that popped into your mind at all but because lenny when he's like selling these tapes he literally he uses the line like this is a piece of somebody's life which i don't know if that made um made you think of as well of those uh platforms at all do you know what? I, I didn't when Lenny was talking about it, but there is, I don't know what, if you want to get into this whole part of the storyline at this point, but um, there is a, another squid recording that we see in the film that is it's kind of a long story. As with like a lot of the film noir of this type, there's all these kind of twists and turns in the plot, but there's one squid recording where a woman is witness to the murder of a famous rapper. He's a black man, him and his friend, both black guys are killed when they're stopped by a couple of cops um, at traffic stop and they're just executed. Um, and this is all recorded on this squid device. So at that point, I definitely thought that's, and I know this is a lot more heavy than what we were talking about with like maybe Instagram and things like that, but it really reminded me of how now with um, modern technology, with being able to have a camera in everyone's pocket, mm. how that's really kind of publicized a lot of uh, police violence and a lot of other situations as well, like, you know, not just in the case of things like Black Lives Matter and with how black people are treated in America by the police, but in situations where there's riots or in war-torn countries when there's been war crimes committed, just how much the pro proliferation of that technology has allowed these things to be exposed. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's what made me think of yeah the modern context more yeah yeah well okay well i, I definitely want to talk about that that stuff in detail but just on the sort of i just want to say on that what the way i was, was thinking about it when you know that line like this is a piece of somebody's life um like he's he's talking about that was kind of sold i would question the extent to which that's real but like the idea is the appeared and stuff like you know youtubers and people who are like famous on instagram or whatever is that you're getting something that's an authentic part of someone's life as opposed to like mainstream tv or whatever which is is more mediated and a, a lot of it is yeah it's literally like what those people are showing you is their life so it's this thing of experiencing a life that you don't live as as with this the squid stuff and there's a bit where that same bit where he talks about piece of somebody's life i think it's the same bit uh, it may not be anyway he he complains to the guy who's trying to sell him tapes about oh you know this is soap stuff like boring arguments it just made me think of this idea of like memory as a product or like life as a product which is again i think what obviously what is happening with these squid tapes but it is obviously it's also what people are doing with stuff like youtube and instagram and obviously when you start to turn your 
your memory or your life into a product, it inevitably becomes artificial. And as soon as you start to deconstruct this idea about, you know, YouTube being authentic and so on, it's quite obvious that your life like becomes a, a performance, like you're performing performing your life for an audience that you know is there like you're conscious that whatever you, you know it is what i'm doing like exciting or alluring enough and you start to like become a product to yourself which um yeah that's totally you know. totally i think that's absolutely right and we see scenes as well where he's almost like directing people right like there's yeah. um, a sex film that he's going to make and he's like okay if you could just look a bit longer here and you know, just make sure that, you know, you're keeping your eyes moving up and down their body. So he's like, what? it's not a slice of someone's life. It's not what it actually feels like necessarily to be in the situation. It's how it's curated for the purpose of being shown and being shared around. So, yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose Black Mirror somewhere, they've seen this, you know, critiqued a lot in recent years. You know, um, I'm thinking about this kind of social media episode where you can rate everyone with points. And it's completely shaping everyone's day-to-day behavior because how your reputation is formed via appearances is having material effects on, you know, how you can progress through mm. life. And I think that, yeah, so so we could draw connections uh, definitely into modern-day technology that mm. way. So let's, um, let's go on to the, the, the stuff you mentioned, like the race relations stuff in the U.S., it's, it, another major major part of this film which obviously centered around as you mentioned the killing of this guy called he's called jericho one he's a rapper i uh, just to say well, it's not just so we'll, we'll get into to that but um, there's, i think there's quite a few like subtle things in the film in terms of race stuff for example that the woman you've mentioned who had recorded the execution i think right at the beginning or near the beginning of the film she's running away from the police who are trying to kill her which we don't know why at, at that point but someone you know comes through on the radio asking if they need backup and they um, obviously they don't want anyone getting involved for whatever they're trying to kill this woman for and they say no we don't need backup we can handle it suspect is a black male 35 to 40 I just thought it's interesting that like they used oh it's a black guy as if you know that's like the most standard the thing they thought of as the most standard and obvious thing that we can like say is it's a black guy committing a crime do you know what I mean it's just normal don't worry about it. absolutely and that's so that's so true as well like actually um it, uh, one of my other, as well as Utopian Horizons, one of my other favorite podcasts is uh, My Favorite Murder, where they just talk about true murders every week. And something that comes up quite a lot is that if somebody has killed their spouse, for example, and then they phone the police and they're trying to play it off as if it's been a home invasion gone wrong, it's not them that's killed their wife, but actually someone's come, they often will say, oh, it was a group of black men that came into my house and killed my wife, it wasn't me. So it's actually... I think that's quite a, a common thing, not just for the police to do, but yeah, if there's a white person who's committed a crime, just blame it on some black people and hope that the racism of the police will take care of the situation and take the, the eye of the law view as well. So yeah, I think that was a really interesting point, yeah. And it, like you say, just a little touch at that stage as well, not really a kind of significant aspect of the story. Hmm. So let's go on to, to talk about Jericho one then. So yeah, he's been he's been murdered, and as Anna said, we we know we we find out through the course of the film that there is a recording of it that this woman has, but that's not public knowledge at the the whole 
thing of the film revolves around this recording and getting it and you know the police are trying to trying to get hold of it but um they say that it's gang related killing and uh, at the point where no one knows you know what happened which again is another classic um classic thing but i mean do you want to try and describe uh, the kind of person that jericho one is and why he's kind of a, a significant figure in the world of the film yeah i think that he's a rapper but it's also important to recognize that he's a, a hugely important cultural figure for African-Americans in the film. Um, and I can't remember who said it, but I heard somewhere, maybe it was when I was watching a hip-hop documentary or something, about how rap is like CNN for black people. Mm. So Jericho One is this kind of representative of sharing the African-American experience with other African-American listeners and trying to give hope. He talks a lot about history and how that's affected the African-American fate in America. And he's almost like, the, he is almost like a prophet character yeah. and definitely like a, a head of a movement. I think you get that impression quite a lot, yeah. Yeah, we, we hear some of his like songs that are played on the TV and stuff and they're explicitly political like about how, you know, the sort of drugs and guns in his community are coming from uh, you know the the white state effectively he talks about America being his bogeyman for 400 years and it shows like a KKK guy so he's explicitly political there's a, I think they show a speech of him as well where he talks about the LAPD as a military force turned against its own people mm-hmm. um, so it ties into I did an episode previously on the on the Black Panthers and it ties into the, their kind of thinking I think that he's a figure that's drawn from that kind of tradition like he is describing the police as like an occupying colonizing force which is the the way that the, the black panthers thought of the police um so you can go back to that episode if you're interested in that but um i think also the the killing like the and the, the tape of it is the the first of like, i think it's a pr- pretty obvious reference to the the rodney king um incident mm-hmm. would that be fair yeah it's the same setup wasn't it that it was a traffic stop i think that started the rodney king eaten mm. and yeah that's and, and, and the level of shock as well that when again it's one of these situations in the film where we see the recording but we also see one of the characters watching the recording or experiencing the recording and that gives us an idea of the significance of what we're seeing so in this case it's not Lenny that we see watching the video it's his best friend Mace mm. who's played by Angela Bassett who is um, I'm sure you listeners know like one of the best african-american actresses that there is at the moment and has been for the last 20 years and she's just amazing in this film yeah. as well as anything else she's in black panther as well so people can shop right there but yeah so we see mesa's reaction as an african-american woman to watching the execution in cold blood of this extremely important cultural figure and she's crying and she's talking about how this could be a war if this gets out and maybe it's about time too. Maybe it's about time that we face up to these kind of conflicts that are tearing the society apart, but it takes a lot for it to be actually brought into the surface. And that's exactly what this recording has the power to do, is to bring to the surface these tensions that are that shape the whole film really, but um and shape the whole of American society for that matter. Yeah, I should probably, I should have done this, but I, I should probably have said, just for anyone who, who might not be aware, when I said the Rodney King incident, this was, uh, this happened in 1991, and this was an incident where he was um, pulled over by the police, and somebody at the side of the road had a camera and filmed it, and 
they um, kick the shit out of him, basically. It's, yeah, not very nice to watch, but you, you, you can find it on the internet, I'm sure, if you want to. But um, Yeah, there's like a few of them, and they have battings as well as they're actually kicking him. And later, I think they said that, oh, maybe he was on like PCP or some kind of drug or whatever in it. You know, or it gave him super strength. But you can see when you watch the video that this is a man who's on the floor and they're continually, you know, they're not, they're not stopping attacking this man. You know, once he's obviously unarmed on the floor, yeah, there's just no mercy for him. Yeah. So this, this piece of footage was a very, very famous and impactful um, example of, of police brutality at the time. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, as you suggested, there seems to be like there's a real focus on like the idea of of watching it. Like as you said, like he gets Mace. So um, Mace does not has not used Squid technology before. She hates it. She refuses to do it. But Lenny insists that she watches it, and he says like you have to see it. Which she doesn't. He could have explained like what it was, but I think yeah. there's something. I think the point of that is you have to see it. Is like is this idea of witnessing. And like you, you mentioned before, technology giving us the the opportunity to like capture these things and show them. It's it's. I think it's something about like the idea of seeing something and witnessing and like the power of that. I think. Yeah, it's almost like by filming something, you create this obligation on the part of the viewer. Like something like that, there's immediately a social responsibility. And and yeah, you're right. He could have explained it, but. It's almost like that you need to see it to believe it. And I think particularly in these cases, like everybody knows that, well, I think that we and probably most of the listeners know that America has a massive race problem and that there's violence against black people happening all the time. Mm -hmm. But knowing that fact, you know, in, in kind of theory and actually witnessing an incident like that and something that's so unquestionably wrong and so indicative of the institutionalization of racism it makes a difference absolutely i think it does mm. there's a very nice line in your essay that i read about this film where you said about the film showing how like the passive position of the voyeur can quickly turn into an active or even activist position like this as you're saying like this idea that like viewing it compels you to act like you have you can't ignore it so it was interesting but I mean, Mace as well, she describes his tapes as, as a lightning bulb that can change things. So I think, I mean, do you think there is like a, a kind of um, utopian kind of representation of this technology? It's like, you know, the idea that democratization of the, the technology, like its proliferation has a, a utopian potential because it allows, if you think of film as or um, visual medium being as like a way to like produce truth, which obviously the, the mainstream media would have had a monopoly on that but this is like perhaps like a utopian idea that the technology being um disseminated gives like a kind of utopian potential yeah i think the films i think it really does follow a kind of cyberpunk logic here of really highlighting the fact that it's not the technology that is good or bad a dystopian or utopian mm-hmm. it's how that technology is used so you've got this um the potential of this clip of jericho one's death that has a utopian potential within it, that this could be the catalyst for change. If that ends up being a war, even May says that maybe this is like the kind of cleansing fire that the society needs to actually leave this behind. And it's can, it can be about moving forward and changing things. And that's really, to me, held in contrast with the way that Lenny has treated it up until this point of like, you know, living in this past with his ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. and 
constantly revisiting that that nostalgia and that kind of wish to live in an illusion is really held in contrast with this kind of film that cuts through all the illusions and actually shows you the truth of the society and the most important things that matter. And as they, you know, at first when they see this video, their idea is to get it into the hands of the police. But then at one point, Lenny considers trading it for the safety of his ex-girlfriend, mm. using it as a bargaining chip. And Mace is like, you cannot do this. And if you do, we're over. So it, it really does set up that contrast between nostalgia and a wish for illusion and something that's difficult but something that will actually cut through and show you a new path forward. So absolutely, there's utopian potential there, but it's just dependent on how that technology is used rather than the possibilities that necessarily opened up by it. What um, what did you make of... So once they've got that footage of Jericho 1, there's quite a debate between the main characters about what they should do with it, which um, I found problematic in some ways i don't know what you thought of that like mace herself like she's she says maybe they ought to see which i thought you know like why why maybe well i I could see where they were coming from because the whole film has like we were talking about before we've set up this society where there's already fights going on in the street and it's like a powder keg ready to explode that kind of scenario everyone's about to come together for this massive new year's eve party and it just seems like maybe if they showed it on the news at that point, it could be that people rip each other apart. And like I said, Mace does say it maybe was kind of what we need at this stage, yeah. but there is that responsibility that this is going to ignite something. And once it's out there, we can't put it back in the bag. So I can see how that's maybe a difficult call to make. I suppose what I find difficult is that their answer is that, you know, Lenny's an ex-cop and he points out this commissioner who's quite high up in the police and he says, this is one guy that if we can't trust him, we can't trust anyone, we need to get it to him. But it was a bit ironic to me that it's the police who have been the problem in this situation and it's a senior policeman that you're going to, who is like as well an old white guy, um, who you're going to to try and like sort the situation out. So that was a wee bit kind of... Yeah, yeah. I just thought, I just felt because also, obviously because Jericho 1 is so, is so obviously, as we've mentioned, a black revolutionary figure is explicitly, to me there was like an implication in, in the idea that showing this footage would be dangerous and, and start a boy kind of implication that black people were like animalistic and like violent and unable to control themselves if they showed this footage which again the reason i say that as well is because being as this is linked to the the rodney king incident that sparked um riots in la in 1992 which lasted for a number of number of days so i think that it's playing into that as well but it's important to note that that riot didn't occur after the video was released. That riot occurred after the police officers involved Wait, were acquitted. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so like there's this idea, oh, if we show it, you know, the black people are going to go crazy. And it's like, no, if those police officers had been brought to justice, then I'm sure there wouldn't have been a problem. It was the fact that we could all see this video and could see them and all of them got away with it. And that's when the, the riots happened. So I think that's important to to note uh, that that's where that came yeah, from. Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting point. I never thought of that, actually, because um, I think that my mindset was that, fair enough, like, <laughs> if, if, I, if I'd seen that video, if I'd been through what those people had been through with the constant racism and police brutality 
I, I kind of think, you know, and, and like you say, no recourse to justice within mainstream society, then, you know, sometimes rioting and that kind of yeah, thing, absolutely. that is a reasonable response of somebody who doesn't have a voice. So I, yeah, I, I think agree, that's yeah. where I was coming from with that. But yeah, I can absolutely see that being an issue as well. Mm. I mean, maybe we should talk more about some of the other. As you mentioned, Mace is really a cool character in the film. Like she's, she's basically she's the only character in the film that isn't like an asshole. Like she's got yeah. morals, she's got ethics. She's the most capable. She beats people mm-hmm. up when she needs to. She's constantly saving Lenny. She's like the most earnest. And yeah, I think it's interesting that black people are basically the only people in the film who have any kind of ethical or, or moral, moral code um, which i think is quite positive on on the, the film's part um we talk about like being utopian like black characters are the only utopians in this film like in terms of like you know mason jerko one they're like the only people that believe that change is possible there's a scene actually where um jerko one's on the tv and he says history ends and begins again, like talking about so this idea that the millennium that's coming up is a utopian moment. And then Lenny's friend Max says, it's the end of the world. Everything's been done. All music's been done. So this idea of apocalyptic like nihilism versus uh, like an idea of history that you know, mm-hmm. the the that's why as i mentioned about returning to the thing of the millennium i think it's trying to deal with this thing of, of whether you see that as like utopian moment as, as something is whether you believe in history and believe that change is possible we have this really cynical view i think yeah and that racial division is a really interesting one because again it is that whole tension between nostalgia and excitement at the possibility of breaking open something new and when you think about it you know in american politics nostalgia tends to be the complete poison of white politics it tends to be that kind of looking back to oh a time where everyone was white and middle class and we had you know the 1950s ideal of women being in the kitchen Mm. and white men being in power that that is all wrapped up in the idea of nostalgia i think that that's what it's it's really drawn that contrast. Like you say, yeah, the white characters, they're all really, um, you know, decadent in different ways. They're not moving forward with their lives. And Mace is the one that is trying to shake Lenny into realizing that living in the present and working towards a better future is what you have to do in order to basically be alive. Like um, in this one scene where she's trying to snap him out of being obsessed with his ex-girlfriend all the time and she just shouts at him you know this is your life right here right now it's not the playback it's it's not a squid it's not a squid recording it's something that you have to experience in the moment she's really pushing for that to make him recognize that the past is over and that that doesn't have to be a bad thing that can actually be something that sets you free and yeah and and yeah she definitely is just the the moral heart of this film as as well as being an amazing character to watch and just a great screen presence as well yeah she's the best thing in film by far i think (laughs) in case that right here right now struck a chord yes that was um that was sampled um for the fat boy slim song so you probably would have heard it before let's let's talk about the the ending then because um as you mentioned uh lenny persuades Mace that she should give this tape to the police commissioner, um, which yeah, as you as you suggested, I think it would have her idea that she shouldn't trust the cops was probably more realistic and would have been right in the real world. But so that obviously the squid tapes are illegal, so his first response is to have her escorted out and he sort of says, You're lucky I, I don't arrest you, but 
and then she's she's outside she ends up being spotted in amongst all this partying and stuff going on she ends up being spotted by the two cops that killed jericho one and that have been trying to catch her and lenny to to get the tape so she beats up the cops by herself and handcuffs them but then more cops turn up they she tries to kind of explain herself, but they won't listen. And then they will beat her down, which again, I think this was even a more obvious reference to the Rodney King thing, right? Mm-hmm. Also, again, in terms of witnessing, because this happened in a crowd, I think, I mean, that's again significant, right? That they there's a crowd there that watches it. Yeah, and there's almost a kind of domino effect among, I think primarily, I, I want to say just black characters, but I, from what I remember, it's primarily black characters at least that one of them starts to jump on the back of one of the police officers and stop him. And then suddenly they're all joining in and, you know, stopping the police officers from beating her. So there is, yeah, I think that totally is reminiscent of Rodney King at that point. Yeah, just her in in the middle of this massive crowd in this clearing. And they're just, you know, she has a massive cut on her head. I think it's significant as well, the kind of gender politics of Mace's character, because, you know, throughout the film, she's always worn these kind of, you know, um, strong silhouette uniforms you know she's a limo driver as her day job so she wears like almost like a black suit mm. through most of the film and or else she wears maybe like um, a suit jacket but with a tank top underneath so you can see her muscular arms mm. whereas in this scene she's wearing a, a dress because it's a party so she's wearing a kind of sequin dress and it's very feminine so there's also a kind of um i think there's definitely a kind of gender aspect of this coming in as well about the way that black women are treated that here, you know, her femininity is highlighted, but as far as the police are concerned, she is just black in this moment. There's nothing about, you know, there's a woman mm. here that, you know, is clearly in trouble. We need to listen to her story. Um, I think that that's an important dynamic that's really played up as well. And the fact that she's barefoot too in this scene, I always think is um, quite significant. Like the woman who originally made the Jericho one squid recording, she's, she's barefoot when she's running away from the cops in that scene where they're trying mm. to kill her. And then Mace is barefoot, and that vulnerability really comes forward. So, yeah, that's, that is what I think she's doing here, uh, Catherine Bigelow. She's really, she really plays up the gender dynamics here in order to just highlight that vulnerability and the way that that is just not seen by the police, that vulnerability. It's just a black person, and we need to go on the attack. Mm. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I hadn't thought of that aspect, so I'm glad you you uh, brought that up. Um, so after this this happens, this is when the old white guy commissioner turns up, and yeah. he the white knight. <laughs> yes, and he arrests the corrupt cops. I didn't like this uh, ending. I don't know what, what you thought of that. <laughs> I think you know it's kind of that. Um, it's that traditional Hollywood blockbuster way where you have to have a kind of ending that. It gives you, maybe a good way to think of it is that it gives you what you want, but it maybe doesn't give you what you need. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's like here's, okay, everything's tied up in a nice little bow and it was it was all happy at <laughs> the end. But um, unfortunately, you're left a bit unsatisfied because unfortunately, real life isn't like that, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think being as we've, we've talked about, I think this film is in some ways quite radical or, or progressive in the, in the way it deals with the issues that it has. But this idea that the this guy turns up and comes good. I think it kind of undercuts the film's political bite, if you want. This idea that this racist act that's been committed is just a result of a few bad apples, you know, like the system fundamentally totally, yeah. works when obviously we 
it should be pretty obvious to anyone that racism in in the police, uh, in the American police in particular, is a systemic thing. But I think this ending doesn't show that. It suggests that, you know, it's just a couple of bad racist guys. And uh, ultimately, the system is good. The system saves them and everything's okay. Yeah, like the way in those final scenes, you know, like one of those police officers and he's got blood just covered in him and he's just like a total animal and he's just screaming at her and it very much is kind of making it to be like yeah these are two real cops and they're total monsters and especially this one is a monster and now that the the higher-ups have realized what's going on everything's put to rights so it's not the system that is at fault it's these two guys and i think that that's I think it kind of just pulls its punches. That's the yeah. annoying thing because halfway through, there is a bit of a one character suggests that oh, there's actually um, death squads within the police that are going out and um, starting trouble and killing black people and things like that. Um, but then it turns out, oh no, uh, that was actually just a lie that he made up to try and scare yeah. Mason Lenny. So yeah, it, in that way, I think that was one way where I would have thought maybe the film's trying to have its cake and eat it, like it's trying to raise these possibilities but then it can't really do that and maybe maybe we could put that down to the limitations of the blockbuster format yeah, sure. and the way that it you know kind of has to give people or feels it has to give people a certain trajectory of the storyline and yeah. what can you do within it it's still a long film it's still about two and a half hours but you know what can you do within that time mm. but yeah you feel you do feel a bit frustrated that it could have gone a lot further and been a bit more yeah Sure. Something that, that I found interesting and I think is kind of surprising is there's an idea in this film, which I think is quite a reasonable one, that techno- as we've already touched on this, technology being able to give us witness on to these events would necessitate us acting and, you know, change coming in some fashion. But it's interesting now, you can see video, you see videos of police killing and brutalizing black people all the time. It's coming constantly now. Like I've seen, uh, I've seen a few, I mean, obviously I don't watch them all because I don't have that kind of, I felt kind of obligated to watch some of them, but I've seen videos of police like shooting black people in the back. You can, you see it on the video and none of these people get prosecuted. The police continue to do it. So that that's proved to be, as I say, I think it's quite a reasonable idea, but it seems to be proved quite a naive idea that technology allowing us to see these films would be enough, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I suppose that maybe from the position where we're in now, it's hard to tell because would Black Lives Matter be such a massive international significant movement were it not for these kind of yeah, videos? Point, yeah. You know, like, like they're building a movement and, you know, it's hard to tell where that's going to go. But I certainly think that it has created the, a, a greater possibility for change, I suppose, which is maybe all you can ask of this kind of thing. You know, it doesn't unfortunately change it overnight. But, no, you're quite, I think you're quite right yeah. to point out, actually, yeah. I mean, it definitely... Yeah, I think it has had an effect in helping yeah, movements movements like that. And yeah, it's made it a, um, certainly raised the awareness of that stuff happening. But yeah, I think it's a it's it kind of it's a shame that it shows you that there's still ideology and like these structures of, of power there that means that we can see the police doing these things on film and then you can still get away with it. So but yeah, I think Yeah, I think there's like a big um kind of I really want to go into psychoanalytic theory here, but it's been so long since I read any myself that I just don't feel that I can. But there is that difference between, you know, once you've seen something, there there is a sense that you can't really 
ignore it as much. And obviously the ideology here is so strong in so many ways when it comes to American politics, like the right to bear arms and things like this, the right for the police to carry guns and the importance that Americans, well, I don't want to speak too generally, obviously, but you know, the, um, the importance that a number of North Americans invest in that, I suppose, they almost seem that they don't understand how a society can work when the police are not armed. Mm. And if the police are armed, then there's that kind of all mistakes do happen. Even if you're shooting someone in the back, yeah. you would think that you, you can't argue with that. But the ideology is so strong that people maybe can deny the evidence of their own eyes. But hopefully, if enough people see it, then you would hope that maybe it would start to sink in that this isn't just the kind of, you know, a few accidents that are happening. This is a systemic legacy of slavery more or less so yeah i would hope anyway yeah maybe i'm being naive but i think you have to be sometimes if you're trying to be a bit utopian as well <laughs> no no I, th- I definitely think you're right like as you say that these these technologies have definitely helped in kind of building the resistance to this stuff even if it hasn't ended it or you know changed it yet so yeah i think that's definitely fair so um has i'm not particularly familiar with um, Catherine Bigelow. I'm not particularly familiar with film. I hardly ever watch any films. So uh, there's a great swathe of stuff I haven't seen, but obviously she's continued to produce stuff. Has she continued picking up on any of these these themes or like techniques or developed any in, in her later films? Uh, absolutely. In my article for Cyberpunk and Visual Culture that I mentioned earlier, well, my chapter in that book, I talk about how some of these themes continue in Zero Dark Thirty, which was quite a controversial film that she mm. made about the execution of Osama bin Laden. Um, so the the kind of angle I take on that is maybe a wee bit controversial because the film was denigrated by a number of people for being the tool of the CIA and kind of like forwarding their, the way that they would want it to be seen. Yeah, I, do. I remember seeing a few people sort of arguing that it was kind of trying to legitimise torture. Yeah, Glenn Greenwald was really unhappy with it. I think it's it's really worth reading his critiques as well. But I I basically argue that there's um, a lot of her kind of authorship that comes out in that film that I think is really interesting to see, especially when reading it alongside Strange Days. I think that's very interesting. And then, of course, last year uh, she brought out Detroit, which is about um, a case from the 1960s when there were some riots happening in Detroit and there were a number of young black men killed at a motel there, the Algiers Motel. Mm-hmm. And it's completely, as we we're talking about there, it's completely extrajudicial killing. It's racist police that um, that go in there with their prejudices and just have no respect for the fact that these are young boys that are just having a night out and having some fun. And yeah, it ends in tragedy. And once again, this is a case where justice was not served to the black community when these uh, police officers were brought to trial. Mm. So that's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in how the race politics plays out in her later career as well. I definitely don't think that this was just a, a coincidence that race was so significant in Strange Days. It's something that's obviously stayed with her and, and you can see it in her later films like Detroit as well. Okay, cool. Well, um, thank you very much for coming on again. It's been good to talk about that film. Uh, if you want to follow uh, Anna on Twitter, you can find her on there at Marietta Rosetta. Um, yeah, thank you very much for joining me, Anna. It's been good to talk to you. No problem. Thanks again, Paul. That is the end of my conversation with Anna. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you'd like me to keep doing this podcast, 
and you would like to support me to help me keep doing it, I do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash utopianhorizons. If you don't know, Patreon is a thing where you can uh, give a little bit of cash, however much you want, to help support people doing whatever things they do. That would just help me in terms of covering the the hosting costs and make it easier for for me to keep doing this. And uh, hopefully help me to um, start doing episodes more regularly, which uh, I try to do, but every now and again something gets in the way of that. Um, If you have any thoughts on this episode or any other episode or any questions or anything like that, you can get in touch with me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. You can find the Twitter account at utopianhorizons if you prefer to tweet me. And there is also a Discord server for Utopian Horizons where you can come and talk to me and some other listeners uh, to the podcast. You can find the link to that on the pinned tweet on the on my um, Twitter at Utopian Horizons. If you could give me a review on iTunes as well, that would be a big help. Um, yeah, so that's the end of the episode. I have finally finished reading Angel of the Revolution, so I should hopefully be recording that with my guest soon, and we'll get that out as soon as I can. So yeah, thank you. Until next time.